like you to take a Bible this morning. Let's open it together to 1 Samuel chapter 24. Uh, we're going to be continuing in our ongoing study of the life of the great man of God, David. And if you didn't bring a Bible this morning, we'd like to invite you to borrow our copy of the Bible. You'll find it on, uh, on the back of the seat there, right in front of you. We're going to be on page 209, page 209 in our copy of the Bible, or 1 Samuel 24 in your copy. Now, today we want to talk about one of the most difficult issues that we as followers of Jesus Christ face. And that is the issue of how we as Christians should relate to civil government, to secular government. And this is a real issue for us as Christians. And even here in America, it's a very controversial issue. For example, let's just take the issue of legal abortion and how Christians here in America should respond. I mean, we have people involved in Operation Rescue that are Christians violating trespass passing laws, to block abortion clinics, defying civil authorities, being arrested, being fined, being imprisoned. Then we have other Christians who are willing to march out in front of abortion clinics, but they won't actually violate the law. They won't get arrested. They stop short of that. Then we have the Christian coalition and other groups like that who don't do anything in front of abortion clinics, but they try to work inside the, the uh, legislative process to try to bring change legislatively that reflects biblical values. And then we've got Mennonite Christians and others who are completely apolitical, don't want anything to do with the political system at all, and whose position is, hey, we're just here to talk to people about Jesus and let the country go wherever it wants to go. We are, we are not dealing with that. So where is the balance on all of this? I mean, just how is a Christian supposed to relate to his or her civil government? This is the question that we want to try to answer today. You say, Lon, <laughs> you are a brave man. I mean, you talk about fools rushing in where angels fear to tread. Why in the world would you bring up and deal with a subject like this of all places in Washington, D.C.? Well, the answer to that is that right in our passage here today, David deals with this very issue. And since it's a genuine issue that we as Christians face every day, and since the Bible does have some very specific instructions about our relationship with civil government, it seems to me that it would be cowardly for us to go around the issue and not deal with it. And so we're going to try. And my sincere prayer is that I will still be employed Next week. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Okay, let's look together. First Samuel 24. Remember what happened last week we saw Saul was in minutes uh, within minutes of putting his hands on David and suddenly there was a Philistine incursion into the land and in God's perfect timing Saul was called away to deal with that and David escaped. Now he's dealt with the Philistines and he's back after David again. So let's pick up verse 1, 1 Samuel chapter 24. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told David is in the desert of Engedi. And so Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel, and he set out to look for David. Verse 3. And he came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in that very cave. So here Saul comes back after David with a vengeance, and, and as he's frantically searching for David, suddenly nature calls. And he goes into this cave to take care of nature, and it just so happens it's the cave where David and his men are hiding. Some of these caves, actually, uh, a thousand or more people can fit in some of these caves down around the En Gedi area. This could have been a very huge cave. David and his men were in the back. Verse 4. 
And the men said to David, David's men said to him, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. May I tell you that the Bible never records God ever having said that to David, that what happens apparently here is that his men have taken God's promise that he would protect David and twisted it around and distorted it to try to talk David into doing what they wanted him to do right at that moment in time. They, and, and David says, wait a minute, guys, wait a minute. That is not exactly what God said to me. He goes on to say, it goes on to say here, middle of verse four. So David crept up unnoticed and he cut off a corner of Saul's robe. But afterward, verse five, he was conscience stricken for having done this. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or that I should lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. And with these words, verse 7, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. David had an enormous opportunity here to kill Saul. And he said, I will not do it. I will not raise my hand against him because God anointed him as king. Verse 8. And then David went out of the cave and he called to Saul and he said, my Lord King. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself on the ground. And he said to Saul, why are you listening to the people who are telling you that David's bent on harming you? I'm not bent on harming you, David said. This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in that cave. And some people urged me to kill you, but I spared your life. I said, I will not lift my hand against my master because he is the Lord's anointed. Verse 11, he holds up this piece of cloth that he cut off and he says, look, Saul, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but I did not kill you. Now understand and recognize that I am not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you're hunting me down, trying to kill me. Verse 12, and may the Lord judge between you and me, Saul. May the Lord avenge the wrongs that you've done to me, but my hand, as for me, I will not touch you. Now, it's interesting here to observe David's attitude towards King Saul. His attitude was that Saul is the God-appointed leader of this land. And even though he's not perfect, and even though he's made a lot of mistakes, and even though he's out to do an unrighteous thing like kill me, and he's been chasing me around and making my life miserable, in spite of all of that, if he has treated me bad, David says, I will trust God, that God will deal with Saul in God's perfect way and in God's perfect timing. But as for me, I am not going to raise my little pinky to lay hands hands on this man or to try to overthrow his government. He is the government that God put in charge and I am not going to do anything to undercut that government. Now, I might want to stop here for just a moment and say that if you're here and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal savior, that there is a wonderful part of being related to Jesus Christ that David highlights for us here in his attitude and in his words. And that is that David understood that when you belong to God, God is your partner going through life, that God holds your hand going through life and that God is willing to intervene and to defend you as appropriate. God is willing to step in and help you and protect you as appropriate. And this is what David said. When God's ready, God will step in and God will deal with you, Saul. I don't have to worry about it. I'm not in this life alone. It's not you against me, Saul. It's you, Saul, against me and my partner, the living God. And friends, 
One of the wonderful things that you get when you ask Jesus Christ into your life is not only do you get eternal life, but you get Almighty God as a partner for the rest of your life. And that is a huge advantage. I don't know about you, but going through this life all by myself is not something I find particularly desirable. And it's so nice to know I've got a partner, the living God himself, who walks with me and talks with me and protects me and intervenes when it's necessary in my life and in the affairs of my life. And if you're here and you need that in your life, then I want to invite you to consider Jesus Christ to become your partner. It's easy. All you have to do is invite him. He'd love to be your partner. Something to think about. Well, that's the end of our passage, but it leads us to ask the really important question. And what's the really important question? So what? So what? Right. Say, Lon, this is wonderful. It's wonderful that David was so nice to Saul and so merciful to Saul. But frankly, big whoop. I mean, it doesn't make one bit of difference to my everyday life what just happened here. Oh, I beg to differ. I beg to differ. You see, I believe right here in 1 Samuel 24, David displays a definite worldview about how a Christian is to relate to their government. And let me summarize it. it. David's view was this, that we as Christians have the duty to respect, to honor, to pray for, and to obey civil government and its leaders, even though those leaders are not perfect. That we are to be model citizens in whatever nation, whatever government we find ourselves under. This was David's worldview about how he was to relate to his government. And may I show you another passage in the Bible that speaks to the same issue? I wonder if you'd turn with me in the New Testament to the book of Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, it's page 804, if you're using our copy of the Bible. This passage, Romans 13, is the longest passage anywhere in the Bible dealing with the relationship of Christians to human government. I wish I had time to do the whole passage with you. I don't. So let's just summarize the bottom line. And it's found in Romans 13, verses 1 and 2. Verse 1, verse 2, okay? Here's what it says. It says, everyone, every Christian, must submit himself or herself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established, and the authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, the person who rebels against the, the governing authorities that exist are rebelling, those people are rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment, will bring discipline on themselves. Now, in verse 1, the Bible says right here, Romans 13, verse 1, that we as Christians need to submit ourselves to civil government. The Greek word that's used here is a word that's used for ranking things under other things. It was a military word that was used to refer to one rank in the military being placed under another rank. So, for example, lieutenants are under captains, captains are under majors, majors are under colonels. And you as a major may have absolutely no respect on a personal level for your colonel, but nonetheless, he or she is the colonel. And so therefore, you don't respect the person, you respect the rank. And that's what military people are taught. Well, in the same way, Paul says, doesn't really matter whether our political leaders are perfect or not. We respect the rank. We respect the fact that God has given them that rank and that as a result of that, when it comes to our civil government, whatever kind of government that may be, a dictatorship, an atheistic regime makes no difference. We are to rank ourselves under that government and be in submission to that government because, verse 1, the authorities that exist have been established by God. You say, Lon, wait a minute, time out. 
Do you mean to tell me that this, the Bible is saying that God established apartheid? Are you trying to tell me that the Bible says that God established the mandatory sterilization of women in China? Or that he established the gross corruption as in Kenya? Or that he established the degradation of women as in Iran? Is that what you're trying to tell me? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. God does not condone government-sponsored cruelty or government-sponsored corruption or human rights violations. That is not what the Bible is saying. What the Bible is saying is that even with their sinful policies, every government in place on earth today is there at the pleasure of Almighty God. That every government that exists today is serving some global purpose in the all-global all, all plan of God. And you're not smart enough to understand what that global purpose for a nation is. And I'm not smart enough to understand what it is. But believe me, when God is done with a regime, he can remove it just like that. I mean, how many of us ever thought we would see the fall of the Iron Curtain and the fall of the Berlin Wall in our lifetime? I wouldn't have bet you one penny on that ten years ago that it would ever happen. And yet when God was done, whatever he was doing with that regime, it came down so quick it was scary. So the regimes that are still in existence, the Bible says, are there because they are serving some peace in God's global plan for the ages. And because that government is there, it is there by his plan. And therefore, we are to be found respecting and obeying the governments that exist. This is, uh, this is how David viewed it. See, King Saul was not a perfect political leader. His government was not a perfect government. But David viewed his regime as having been established by God. And that's why David referred to him as God's anointed. And that's why David refused to lift a single finger to undermine the government of King Saul. And folks, the rest of the word of God corroborates this position that David took, that we as Christians have the duty to respect, to honor, to pray for and to obey civil government and its leaders, even though they're not perfect. Titus chapter three, verse one, remind Christians to be subject to rulers and authorities. First Timothy chapter two, I urge you to pray for kings and for those in authority that we may live peaceful, quiet lives in all godliness. And I might add here that we need to be careful. We never underestimate the power of prayer in terms of affecting human government. God says, you don't like the way human government's going? Let me tell you what you do. You pray for that government. You pray for its leaders because the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, the book of Proverbs says. And God turns that heart of that king, that president, that governor, wherever he wants it to go. So you pray. Don't you dare underestimate the power of prayer for your political leaders. Finally, Peter wrote, 1 Peter chapter 2, Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether it's to kings or the governors or to whoever it is in civil authority. You say, Lon, wait, 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 wait. Peter said that. Right. The same Peter who, when he was arrested and told he couldn't speak out in the name of Jesus and giving direct civil governmental instructions that he was to stop preaching the gospel, is this the same Peter who looked at them and said, I'm sorry, I must obey God rather than men, who went out into the streets and defied civil government, who went out in the street and challenged civil government, who got arrested several times and almost killed because he defied civil government? The same guy? Same guy. You say, now wait a minute. This makes no sense. The man speaking out of both sides of his mouth. He's defying civil government. And then he's writing and telling us that we should submit ourselves to every authority instituted among men. Now, how do you explain that? 
I mean, when do we as Christians have the right in some way to resist our civil government and resist our political leaders? And when don't we? Well, that's an excellent question. And I want to take the rest of the time I've got to talk to you about that because the Bible tells us there are three times when we as Christians are allowed by God to oppose our political leaders, to resist our civil government peacefully and nonviolently. There are three occasions and Peter was exercising one of them. And I want to talk to you about the three of them. So you ready? Here are three times the general rule is we're to submit, we're to obey, and we're to do everything our civil government tells us to do. That's the general rule, but there are three exceptions. Number one, you ready? When are we allowed to resist our government? Number one, when the political leaders of our government or the civil government itself is guilty of breaking the law. You see, my friend, there is no political leader anywhere that God says is above the law. I think of Moses. You know, Moses sinned when he was leading Israel. And yet God held him responsible for that sin, just like he had held ordinary Israelites responsible. He said, Moses, I don't care whether you're the political leader. I don't care whether you're the grand poobah or not. If you do something that's a crime that I held other people responsible for doing and punish them for doing, I'm going to punish you for doing it too. You are not above the law, Moses. And David, the same thing. When he sins with Bathsheba, as we're going to talk about in the weeks to come, God didn't say to him, oh, you're the king, so I'll hold other people accountable for this, but because you're the political leader, you can get away with it. Oh, no. Oh, no. God disciplined him and, in fact, disciplined these two men more severely than he disciplined the average citizen because they were under greater responsibility and greater roles of leadership. And so God dealt with them even more severely. Friends, political leaders, even the most godly political leaders, are not above the laws that apply to the rest of society. And what this means in our modern world is, yes, we are to respect our political leaders. Yes, we are to honor our political leaders. Yes, but if a political leader does something that is a crime, that is wrong, that person must be held responsible for their actions, just like any normal citizen should be. And it is not a violation of Romans 13 or the Bible for us as Christians to support the use of legally permissible means to respond to crime and wrongdoing on the part of our political leaders. And even if it costs them their office, there is nothing wrong with that if they did a crime that deserves that kind of punishment. Was it wrong for us as Christians to support the House Ethics Committee's investigation of Representative Dan Rostenkowski for the crimes he committed? Absolutely not wrong. Was it wrong for us as Christians to support the discipline of Senator Packwood for sexual harassment once it was proved he did that? No, it was not wrong. Was it wrong for us as Christians to support the Watergate investigations that eventually brought President Nixon down? No, it was not wrong. There had been crime committed. And is it wrong for us as Christians today to support the present investigation into Whitewater and into Lewinsky? No, it is not. If there's wrongdoing that's been done, no matter who did it, People have to be held accountable just like everybody else, whether you're a political leader or not. You say, Lon, I'm getting real uncomfortable here. Sounds real partisan to me. I'm getting real uncomfortable. Well, friends, this has nothing to do with partisanship. Animal, vegetable, Democrat or Republican does not make one bit of difference. We are talking about a principle that applies across the board, has nothing to do with partisan politics. Yes, these political leaders are people that we should respect, but they are not above the law. Principle number two, when is it okay for us to oppose and resist a civil government? Principle number two, when a political leader 
or government is guilty of human rights violations. You see, the principle of human rights in the Bible is more important than the principle of obedience to civil government. They are both biblical principles, but God ranks one higher than the other, and the one that he ranks higher than the other is the principle of human rights. That's why in the Old Testament you would see the prophets of God confronting kings and confronting leaders and saying to them, you are taking advantage of the poor, you are taking advantage of the widows, you are abusing and taking advantage of orphans and homeless people. This is not acceptable. And I'm going to oppose you, king, at every turn. Was that prophet outside of biblical obedience? Absolutely not. King Ahab, one of the wickedest kings in the Old Testament, murdered a guy named Naboth so he could steal his vineyard. And then after that, carried on a deliberate program of genocide against every prophet and every servant of God in the northern kingdom of Israel. And Elijah the prophet opposed him. Elijah the prophet stood against him. Elijah the prophet uh, disobeyed civilly every opportunity he got. He even prayed a famine on the land for two and a half years. Was he outside of the Bible and opposing his civil government like that? Absolutely not, because this was a civil government that was carrying on gross human rights violations. Was Corey Ten Boom wrong for defying Adolf Hitler's Nazi government and trying to get Jewish people safely out of Europe before he could kill them in the gas chambers? She was not. Was Pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrong in standing and preaching openly against Hitler and opposing the civil government from his pulpit? He was not. He paid for it with his life in concentration camp. No, he was not. Were the people who led the American Civil Rights Movement wrong in opposing the government, marching against the government, and saying this is human rights violations and this is wrong? No, they were not as Christians. They were not in violation of the Bible. God not only tells us it's our right, but God tells us it is our duty as Christians to oppose any policy of any government that's involved in gross human rights violations. And one caveat I'll add here, peaceful resistance, yes. Civil disobedience, yes. Violence, doing bodily harm to anybody in the pursuit of changing human rights policies, absolutely not. Absolutely not. God never gives you and me the right to bring physical harm to anybody, to blow up anything in the process of trying to change human rights policy. I mean, it is never right to do a wrong to do a right. Did you follow that? It is never right to do a wrong to do a right. And so we're not allowed to go do wrong in order to bring some greater right. I'm sorry, God never gives us that right. But to oppose in a peaceful, nonviolent way human rights violations, absolutely. That is a duty we have as the servants of God. Third and finally, when does God give us the right and call us to oppose civil government and its leaders? Third and finally, when a political leader or a government tries to prohibit us from spreading the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Now, that's what the deal was with Peter. This government called him in and said, look, you may not talk about Jesus. You may not preach him openly. You may not mention his name. You had to shut your mouth and we don't want to hear the name of Jesus in the streets ever again. And Peter said, gee, I'm really sorry, gang. I'll obey you in everything else you tell me. But Jesus said, go into all the world and share the gospel message with every person. And so if you're asking me not to do that, I'm sorry, but I need to obey God and not you guys. And he went out and did it. And you know what? This is a real conflict that Christians face in countries all around the world and even here in America. 
I have a good friend named Naji Kanaji. He's a, um, he's a, a missionary that we support in the Sudan. And you may not realize this, but the Sudan right now has an Islamic militant government that has forbid all speaking out for Jesus, all church activity, all Christian witness. My friend Naji lives in the southern part of the Sudan where there's a fairly large Christian community. And he is an evangelist. That's what God called him to be. The last time he was here a couple of years ago and spoke in our church, he had just gotten out of jail. He's been in jail so many times, he's lost count of how many times he's been in jail. He's been beaten. He's been, in, he's been fined. He's had to hide his family because his family's life has been in danger. Now, is he disobeying the Bible by defying his civil government and standing up for Jesus Christ, regardless of the fact that they tell him, we're going to throw you in prison if you do it? He is not. He is absolutely not. And this is a situation faced by Christians in Israel today, faced by Christians in China today, faced by Christians in North Korea and in virtually every, every Arab country in the world today. And until recently, it was a, a situation faced by every Christian in the communist bloc countries. And were these people wrong to smuggle Bibles in in defiance of their government? No. Were they wrong to stand up and preach about Jesus and risk punishment and imprisonment? No, they were not. Because when a government tries to take us to the place where we have to disobey God to obey the government, then folks, we must obey God rather than men. And you know, this is not just something for Israel and North Korea. Somebody was telling me earlier this morning about a court case in Alabama where a judge has said that it is illegal not just to hold public prayer in school, but it is illegal, in his opinion, for any student to pray in school, even privately, and he has assigned monitors to that school to make sure children don't even bow their heads privately and say grace before they eat. Now, what would you do if you were a high schooler in that situation? Well, I maintain you should bow your head and say grace and let whatever happens, happens, because we must obey God and not man. So this is not just for North Korea. There are times even here in America where you and I may have to confront this. And when we do, the Bible says this is one of those situations where civil government, yes, we obey, we obey and we honor our civil government. But in this one area, we'll defy our civil government if they try to tell us that we can't obey God. Let's summarize. What did we learn today? Well, we've learned the general rule is that we as Christians are to be model citizens. We, are, we have the duty to respect, to honor, to pray for, and to obey our civil government and its leaders, even though they're not perfect. But there are three times when we as Christians are allowed, and in some cases even required, to resist and oppose our civil government. And they are, number one, when a political leader or a government is guilty of breaking the law. Number two, when a, when a political leader or a government is guilty of overt human rights violations. And number three, when a political leader or a government tries to prohibit us as Christians from spreading the message of Jesus Christ. And may I remind you once again that in opposing these policies, we are to do it peacefully. We are to do it nonviolently. We are never given permission to bring harm to any other person in the process of opposing our government in these things. But we are sometimes called to take a stand and say, no, I'm sorry. We're not going along with that because we have a bigger responsibility, a greater responsibility before God. You know, folks, I find Christians everywhere confused these days about exactly how we're to relate to our government. I hope this helps some. I hope this brings some definition into your mind about exactly how you are called by God to relate to the civil government here or wherever you may be around the world.
May this be helpful for you. Let's pray together, okay? Lord Jesus, I want to take this opportunity to do exactly what we've just read that you told us to do. And that is to pray for our government leaders. I want to pray, Lord Jesus, for our president, Mr. Clinton. I want to pray for wisdom for him and discernment for him beyond his years and beyond his own human intelligence. In dealing with the impending hostilities in the Middle East and all the varied and complicated issues that he faces as our president. And I want to pray, God, that you would give him direction so that his decisions might work out to be a blessing to the people of this country. A blessing to people around the world. And that he might lead this nation in a way that would please you and accomplish your perfect will for our country and our world. I want to pray for our Congress and our Senate. And for each of the congressmen and senators that serve there, that you would give them that same wisdom and courage, that same discernment to work with our president in leading us in a way that would be beneficial for every citizen in America. And I want to pray for local leaders, for government and county leaders here in Maryland and in Virginia, that God, you would take all of these leaders' hearts and that you would turn their hearts towards pursuing righteousness for our country, ethical behavior for our country, the, the, the appreciation of human rights for our country, concern for the poor and the needy in our country, that, God, you would give our political leaders the heartbeat that you have for our nation and guide them, Lord. And for those who are determined to lead our nation differently, I pray, even as David said, that you would remove them in your time and in your way and replace them with men and women who have a heart to establish a righteous, ethical nation. God, we know that our leaders face enormously complex issues. And may they find us to be supportive. May they find us to be behind them in prayer and in every way we can as they face the difficult jobs that they have. And God, you guide them to make the kinds of decisions that will be a blessing to us and a blessing to our world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.